Chapter Fourteen of the Short Stop. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Rowdy Delaney, Idaho, USA. The Short Stop by Zane Gray. Chapter Fourteen. Waiting it out. It was a good thing for Chase and his batting average that right after the trial the Finley team took their usual monthly trip on the road. Chase's hitting had been slowly dropping off, except for an occasional vicious double or triple during the last two weeks. But once away from home he returned rapidly to form. The team broke even on the trip, a satisfactory showing to Mac. Sure, we're resting up for the break into the stretch, he said. They came home to find the town more stirred up than ever. The faction that had opposed the game now printed editorials, sent circulars and petitions, preached sermons, and worked indefatigably for Mac and his players, and therefore created all the more interest. The directors came out with the announcement that owing to the increased patronage it was necessary to have more seating capacity, and they erected another open stand. Chase was all the more popular, and more sought after than ever, but he could not take the pleasure in it that he had derived before his arrest. He was quiet and preoccupied, and he haunted the ball-grounds on mornings, and practiced batting till Mac drove him out. "'You Indian, you'll go stale,' cried Mac. "'Besides, you're batting all my practice-balls over the fence for the kids to steal.' Chase thought that a thousand persons beaming upon him could not make up for the coldly averted look of one individual. He fondly imagined that the few whom he met at long intervals, who passed him by as if he were nothing, were the occasion of his gloom. He began to revel in a species of self-pity. It remained for him to learn a good deal from his staunch friend, Mitty Maru. Down in the mouth again? Didn't I once hear you ask Mac? What do you want for fifteen cents, canary birds? Chase me, old college chum. You've got the pip. You couldn't see true a millstone with a hole in it. Ain't you it round these diggins? Sure as you're born, one of the big teams will cop you out this fall. That'll mean two thousand next season. And here you go, moping round like a dead one. What de ell's the matter with you? I'm just a little off my feed, Mitty, I guess. I reckon it's not that. You've got the dangdest case I ever seen, Chase. A pair of sky-blue eyes have been your finish. It's a case of shutout. No hit game. Not a look in. Marjorie's folks have turned you down, and now everything you see is pea-green. Mitty Maru. Go on. You're insulted? Perfectly rude, ain't I? Say, I want her beat some sense into your block. You can't string me. I know, and I want her put in my oar. See? First thing you know, you'll be having a slump, and your fine record'll go to Ballyhoo. Listen, I've been with Miss Marjorie most every day while the team was away, and I had my troubles cheering her up. You ain't one, two, six to Miss Marjorie for a dead one. Chase gave a start, turned wildly to Mitty, and stuttered, "Is is she so sorry? Thought you'd come too. Sorry, say." Marjorie's washed all the sky blue out in her eyes crying. 
She can't cry except when she's with me, so that's when I get it in the neck, as usual. What, what did she say? She didn't say much, except, Mitty, he's angry with me. Is he angry with me? Will he stay angry with me? And then she weeps some more. Angel, Chase murmured. Say, Chase, if you've any regard for my friendship, cut that out. And you're wrong about Miss Marjorie's being an angel. She's a little devil. I tell you, I bet she makes the firefly for that bunch as was after your scalp. She won't go to church or Sunday school. She's sore on her mother, and she won't speak to the old man. She showed your speech that you made at the trial and was printed in the Chronicle to Mr. Marsden, and says it was better'n any sermon he ever preached, and she won't see him any more. She says they all make her tired. Oh, Marjorie's got her back up, and she's gamer'n a red monkey. So all you've got to do is slip out to the river with me, and the rest's easy. No, 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 cried Chase. Then her folks would have something against me. What? I can't do it, Mitty. And yet I want to see her. Are you going to quit? Lay down? Throw the game? Chase struggled with his temptation and overcame it. It wouldn't be right, Mitty. Well, I'll be dinged. What's wrong about fighting your own battles? Ain't Miss Marjorie a girl? She don't know she's wild over you, but she is. All this knockin' of you has put the last crimp in her little romance. Her folks have had sense enough to see that. The more they say agin you, the more she'll be fur you. But darn her folks, I'm thinkin' about her. Presently she'll get wise to her own feelings. And then, there you are, standin' off like that Greek feller on a monument. You want to be near home base when Miss Marjorie gets wise to herself. And then, if you run hard and make a good slide, you'll score. If you're not there, she'll freeze. Girls is girls. Darn the old folks. They preach a lot and go round tellin' what angels they was wanst. It's dollars to doughnuts they half lie and half forget. Mitty, will you shut up? demanded Chase in distraction. What? Of all the ungrateful dubs. But hold on, my feelings ain't hurt. You're got to listen. I've been savin' my best hit for the last innin'. It's a corker. It's a homer, all right, all right. Miss Marjorie's bought up all the buttons with your picture on that she could find. She's wearin' em for badges and medals and shirtwaist buttons and sleeve buttons, and I'm dinged if I know what else. Now what do you think of her? But Chase fled without answering, nor turned at Mitty Maru's shrill yell. The gloom that shrouded him rolled away. Something seemed to sing to him that all would end well. Something whispered for him to wait. His mother had always told him to wait when in anger or doubt. And he applied her advice to temptation, to fear and trembling, to wonderful vague hopes. After the game that day, Minnie Maru sidled up to Chase, searched his face with a gleaming glance, and said, I won't kid you any more, Chase. You can trust me to say the right thing to Miss Marjorie. I've seen her every morning, and she wants to know a lot, and I'm a good liar. But what's your game? Waiting it out, replied Chase with a smile. The little hunchback nodded gravely and walked away with his slow labored steps. Chase found a note at his boarding house. It was from Judge Meggs, asking him to call in the evening on a matter of some importance. After supper, he hurried to the judge's home. It was a magnificent house one of the finest in Findlay. 
Chase felt proud of being invited to call there. A maid admitted him and showed him into the library. "'Hello, Chase. Have a chair,' greeted the judge. "'How's the game today? Was busy late and couldn't get out.' "'Mansfield was easy for us, eleven to three, but they're weak in last place. "'Did you get any hits today? Four, but two of them were Texas leaguers. Four hits. You certainly are keeping it up. "'And what are Texas league hits?' little measly flies that drop over the head of an infielder. I hate them. I like to feel the bat spring and hear the ball ring off. To hang a bell on them, as Mitty Maru says. You're growing heavier, Chase. You're filling out. Yes, what do you think? I weigh nearly a hundred and seventy now. It's funny. I'm getting fat when I perspire so much. What was the feature of today's game? Cass's bulldog. He certainly made things hum. Now you know, just before play is called every game, Mitty Maru puts the club colors on Algy, that's the bulldog's name, and runs him around the diamond. Just for luck, you know. Well, Algy sure is proud of that job. Today, as he was coming in the stretch, a little sassy, ugly pup ran out of the grandstand. Algy saw it, and must have taken it for a rat. He's death on rats, for he bolted after it. Mitty tried to grab him, and Cass yelled like mad. I guess Cass knew what was coming off. Algy chased the little dog into the grandstand. There was a big crowd, lots of women. Well, it was funny. I never saw such a muss in my life. Of all the screaming you ever heard, the women stood on the chairs and fell over the men. Some of them got on the railing and were pushed off into the field. You know the wire screen in front of the grandstand, back of home plate? Well, in the crush to get out of Algy's way, some women jumped on the railing and, of course, fell against the screen. It sagged out and dropped in a sort of bag, and there the women were, like fish in a net, kicking and floundering around. Max said it beat a bargain sale in lingerie, whatever that is. Cass finally got a hold of Algy, and it surely was time enough. There's always something new and funny at a ball game, said the judge, with his hearty laugh. Now, Chase, let's talk business. I've got a proposition for you. Have you planned anything for the winter? No. Is there any reason why you could not have your mother and brother come to live in Findlay? Why, I guess not. I'm glad to hear it. I've got a job for you, seventy-five a month to start, with Megs and Company. You know, my brother's big store, groceries, wholesale and retail, hardware, oil men's supplies, etc., I'm a member of the firm. We're investing heavily in new oil fields, branching out. You'll be busy in the store and keeping time of the men. You'll have a chance to learn things. This job will be ready for you soon. In the meantime, you hang around in the mornings and get on to your work. How does the idea strike you? Thank you. Why, it's simply bully. Only, does that mean I must give up baseball? Certainly not. It's a winner's work for you. You must stick to baseball till you've made some money. But I take it you won't loaf between seasons. I just thought I'd throw this in your way. We need a young man. And as I hinted, there might turn up something of future value to you. I accept. Thank you very much. Now here's another idea. There's a cottage on a plot of ground, ten acres, I think, on Elm Street, just on the outskirts of town. It's a pretty place, and for sale cheap. A little money on repairs would make it a nice home. 
There's an orchard, a grove of maples, and the river runs along the edge of it. This place would be a good investment at twice the price asked for it. I know. I am interested in a real estate deal with some men here. King's one, Sosmer Duff. We're going to develop a good bit of ground to the north of town. Prices will go up out that way. I can get this place on any terms you want. You can buy it for less than rent. You run out there first thing tomorrow, and if you like the place, come to my office and we'll close the deal. Now, let's have a game of billiards. Chase left the judge and went to his room with his mind too full of plans to permit of sleep till late in the night. He awakened early, and breakfast being entirely superfluous, he hurried north to Elm Street and thence the outskirts of town. There was no mistaking the cottage, because it was the only one. Chase felt it was altogether out of the question for him to own such a place. The cottage sat back from the road on a little hill. It was low, many-gabled, vine-covered, and had a porch all the way round. A giant maple shaded the western side. Chase went in. The first room was long, had a deep seat in a bay window, and an open fireplace. He saw in fancy a blazing fire there on a winter's evening. There were a dining-room, and a kitchen, and a cozy pantry. Upstairs were four bedrooms. The west one, all bay windows and bright, would be for his mother. The adjoining one would be Will's, and the little room in the back, from which he saw the grove and the river, would be his. Then he punched himself and said, I'm dreaming again. He looked into the well in the back yard, and straightway began singing the old oaken bucket. He flew through the orchard, and ran into the grove of maples. The trees, the fence, the hill sloped down to the river. There was a little fall, and a deep pool, and a great mossy stone. I've got to hurry back to the judges, and be waked out of this, muttered Chase. What would Mitty think? He'd say there'd never be any hope of my coming down after this ascension. Chase started for town. He would run a little way, then check himself, only to break out into another dash. He got to Judge Meg's office before opening hours and sat down to wait. The time dragged. One moment he'd call himself a fool, and the next he remembered the judge's kindly eyes. Well, well, good morning, Chase. The early bird catches the worm. Come in, come in. How did you like the cottage? Chase stuttered and broke out into an unintelligible speech. Then he grew more confused and bewildered. He heard the kind voice and felt the kind hand on his shoulder. He remembered running breathlessly to the bank and drawing a sum of money. He signed his name to stamped papers, and then the judge was telling him that the property was his. Chase finished this wonderful morning of mornings in his room. After a long time he got a logical idea of things. He had bought a property for eighteen hundred dollars, two hundred down, and twenty each month until the debt was cancelled. The deeds were signed and stamped, and most strange and remarkable of all was to read the name of the former owner, Silas Meggs. Chase spent another morning consulting carpenters, plasterers, paper-hangers, and the next he presented himself at the store of Meggs and Company. He was told to spend his time for the present in the different oil-fields, familiarizing himself with men, conditions, and machinery. And the senior member of the firm added significantly, 
You need not mention your connection with us for a while yet. Just be looking round casually. But be sharp as a steel trap. You may learn things of interest to us. Chase wondered what next would happen to him. There was certainly a thrill in the prospect before him. Such men as Judge Meggs and his brother would not stoop to the employing of a spy, but they might well have use for a detective. Chase had heard strange stories from the oil fields. The oil belt was a scene of great activity that summer. Strikes, unprecedented in the history of boring wells, had been made. All over the belt rose a forest of wooden derricks, with their ladders and queer wheels and enormous pump-handles ceaselessly working up and down. Pipes ran in all directions. Huge tanks loomed up everywhere. Puffs of smoke marked the pumping-engines sheltered in little huts. The ground was black and oily, and the smell of oil overpowering. "'Crude oil, seventy-five cents a barrel?' ejaculated Chase, as he watched the great comical-looking handles bobbing up, some of them pumping a hundred barrels a day. These oil men get rich while they sleep. Chase found that as he was known in the factories and brickyards, so was he known in the oil fields. All gates were open to him. Every grimy workman found time to stop and have a word with him. The governor of Ohio could not have commanded the interest to say nothing of the friendliness accorded to the boy baseball player. It was not long before Chase appreciated his usefulness to Meggs and company. He had a pleasant word for every worker. Hello, I'm out looking over the oil field. Say, that's interesting work of yours. Tell me about it. Then a grimy face would break into a smile. Howdy, Chase. I were just thinking about the team. Close race, ain't it? But we'll put it all over on Columbus next week. I'll be there Saturday and hope you knock the socks off one. Work? This is rotten work I'm on here. Don't need to be done at all. And then the baseball fan would tell the baseball player details of work that a superintendent could not have dragged from him. Every engineer and prospector and driller cared to rest and talk to Chase. The boy was bright and pleasant but the magic halo of a ball-player's fame was the secret of his reception. So it was that he learned things, and surprised the senior member, and won an approving word from the judge. Chase did not visit the same part of the oil fields twice. The wide belt extended a hundred miles toward Lima and beyond. It would have required months to go over it all. One morning he went out to see a new well called the Geyser, just struck, and reported to be the biggest well in the fields, he found a scene of great excitement. Embankments had been thrown up three feet all around the well to catch the jet of oil. There was a lake of oil three feet deep. In some places it broke over the embankment. With more than his usual luck he met an Irishman who had come to him during one of the games and tried to give him part of a wager he had won on Findlay. "'Hello, Pat.' Somebody's struck a dandy, eh? Sure, and it's the old man himself. Come round, and let me show you. He blowed the bloomin' derrick a mile, but we got him under control now. Who are the owners? Dean and Pittman Company, replied Pat. Chase perked up his ears. He knew that this Dean was Marjorie's father. He had learned the firm was in a bad financial strait, 
having repeatedly backed unproductive ventures. When he saw the lake of oil, he had a warm glow of pleasure. He was glad for Marjorie's sake. What's the flow? Must be a regular river. Flow? He'll flow a hundred thousand barrels a day for a while, and that without a pump. Whee! exclaimed Chase. It's too bad, too bad. Such a grand well, said Pat, but it'll never last. Why not? Pat winked mysteriously, but offered no explanation. Chase left him, and talked with the other men. He found that the land on which the well had been struck belonged to Findlay Farmers, and a lease of it had been sought by one of the greatest oil companies in the world. Chase's next move was to find out from the farmers thereabouts if there was any unleased land adjoining. There was one plot of ground, hilly, rocky, impractical for boring, that stood close to the field of the geyser, and which had just been leased by a large company. Chase strolled over the field, and to his great surprise was ordered off. Then a man, evidently in authority, recognized Chase and countermanded the order, giving as excuse some trifling remark about thieves. Chase did not believe the man. He sauntered round as if he were killing time, talked baseball with the men, and remained only a short while. But once, out of sight, he started to run, and he never stopped till he reached the trolley line. He boarded a car, rode into town, leaped off, and again began running. At the office of Dean and Pittman, a boy said Mr. Pittman was out of town, and Mr. Dean at lunch. Then Chase once again took to his heels. Breathlessly, he dashed upon the porch and knocked on the door of the Dean house. Marjorie opened it and uttered a cry at the sight of Chase. "'Where's your father?' he demanded. Marjorie turned white and began to tremble. The blue eyes widened. P "'Papa is, is at lunch. Oh, Chase! Tell him I want to see him. Quick! Quick!' His sharp voice rang clearly through the house. A chair scraped, and hurried steps preceded the appearance of Mr. Dean, a little weather-beaten man of mild aspect. "'What's this?' "'Mr. Dean, I've been out to the oil well. The field next to yours has been leased by Monarch Company. They're drilling day and night, and they know they can't strike oil there. It's a plot to ruin the geyser. They'll sink a thousand pounds of dynamite, explode it, and ruin forever your well. Come on, you haven't much time. They're nearly ready. I saw everything. It's a cold fact. But you can hold them up. We'll get Wilson, the expert, and an officer, and stop the work. Come on, come on. End of chapter 14